Luke chapter 10 will be the subject of our attention this morning as I share with you a message that I've titled, How to Get Going. As we gather our thoughts around this, I want to share with you a, a story. A mother and a, 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 it was a mother camel and her young son who were talking one day. So obviously this is a true story. Anyhow, they were talking when the young camel asked, Mom, why do we have these huge three-toed feet? Well, the mother replied with the gentleness of a mother, Well, son, our, our big toes help us camels stay on top of the soft sand when we walk across the desert. Well, a little while later, the, the young camel, as young camels might tend to do, said to his mother, Mom, why do we have these long eyelashes? And once again, the mother replied gently by saying, Well, our eyelashes, son, are long so that they can keep the sand out of our eyes as we walk through the desert. Then once more, the camel posed a question. He said, Mom, why do we have these big humps on our backs? And the mother camel said, well, son, those humps are to help us store water for our long treks across the desert so we can go for long periods of time without drinking. Well, finally, Junior decided that it was about time for him to pull all of this together. So he said to his mother, it sounds like we were made for walking across the desert. We have huge feet to stop us from sinking, long eyelashes to keep the sand out of our eyes, and these humps to store water. That's right, dear, said his mother. You're so smart. We camels are uniquely designed to thrive in the desert. Okay, said the son, but what on earth are we doing here at the zoo? <laughs> you know, all of a camel's unique desert features give him no advantage if he is bound up in the zoo. But the camel wasn't designed for the zoo. The camel was designed for the desert. And the same God who designed the camel designed the church. He designed this body that we gather together in the name of here on this day. And so today as we move into Luke chapter 10, we'll find that the very designer God himself in the flesh through the second person of the divine trinity is training his church for what it was designed to do. For as Luke 10 begins, we find Jesus instructing the people in his church, his disciples, to go. Quite simply, that two-letter word, to go. And it is at this point in Jesus' ministry when he appoints 70 individuals who will then go out in pairs to prepare the way ahead of him in every city and in every place where he is about to go. Now, Jesus had already done something similar. If you'll recall back when we got to Luke chapter 9, verse 1, the opening verses of Luke chapter 9 had something similar, where Jesus was at that point sending out not 70 individuals, but he was sending out 12 individuals who would then go and prepare the way for him in the northern area of Galilee, kind of in their own back, backyard. And those disciples went out there in Luke chapter 9, and they proclaimed his kingdom, and they performed healing. 
And this theme of disciples being called together and being trained up and being sent out doesn't just occur in Luke chapter 9, doesn't just occur here at the beginning of Luke chapter 10. In fact, we find this is the same theme that comes together at the end of Luke's gospel. In Luke chapter 24, just before Jesus ascends to his heavenly Father, these are his words. We read, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And Jesus said, you are my witnesses to these things. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then we see this just really working itself out in the life of the church. But the clearest wording of what Jesus is telling his disciples to do here is what we would summarize as the Great Commission. And we find the best summarization of that in Jesus' own words in Matthew 28, where Jesus says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And my friends, it's so clear that one word, echoes throughout the New Testament as Jesus' design for his church. And it is the word, go. Christians who are not going to their neighbors and who are not going to the nations to carry out this task are not making use of the Lord's training for them. They are not capitalizing on their design. They might as well be camels in the zoo because Christ has designed for his church to be a people who go. But that's a daunting task for many of us. I mean, just thinking of the prospect of going and representing him amongst our neighbors, going and representing him amongst the nations, that can be a very daunting sort of idea for so many of us. And many of us want to go, but we just don't know how to get started in that very enterprise. Well, today's passage is an important one for us because today's passage is going to show us how Jesus himself taught some of his earliest followers how to get going. And as we observe the instructions that were given to them by Jesus, we're going to find some rich lessons for each one of us as well. That's why I've titled this message, How to Get Going. Let's look at the Lord's instructions to the 70 that he sent out on how to get going in Luke chapter 10. So if you will, find your way to Luke chapter 10. If you're able, I'd ask that you stand, that we can honor together the reading of God's word. We begin in Luke 10, verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Now after this, the Lord appointed 70 others, and he sent them in pairs ahead of him to every city and place where he himself was going to come. And he was saying to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go. There's that word, go. Behold, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money belt. 
no bag, no shoes, and greet no one on the way. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, it will return to you. Stay in that house, eating and drinking what they give you. For the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not keep moving from house to house. Whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat what is set before you and heal those in it who are sick. And say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out into its streets and say, even the dust of your city which clings to our feet, we wipe off in protest against you. Yet be sure of this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I say to you, it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will be brought down to Hades. The one who listens to you listens to me. And the one who rejects you rejects me. And he who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. Here ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Now, as we dig into this text a little bit about how Jesus shows his disciples, shows this early gathering of those that he is sending out, how they ought to be going, I, I want to share with you in particular how to get going on the Lord's mission through five ways that each of us ought to get going. And the first is this. Go with dependence upon the Lord's power. Go with dependence upon the Lord's power. Last week in Luke chapter 9, we saw three individuals kind of coming to Jesus in sequence, and Jesus tested their discipleship. One guy came, and he said, I'll follow you, Jesus, wherever you go. But Jesus sensed that this guy wanted some sort of convenient discipleship. He wanted to find you know, the nice conveniences of being with a Savior who performed awesome miracles. He expected that he would be staying in, you know, the, the, the Hampton Inn as he traveled along the road. And Jesus said, foxes have dens, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And so he showed him that following him would not be a convenient sort of discipleship. Then Jesus commanded another man directly with a word saying, follow me. But that man said, well, first let me go and wait for my father to pass away. Let, let me work on my own timing and, and let me have this delayed sort of discipleship so that I can bury my father. And then when I've gotten that taken care of, then Jesus, I'll come follow you. And Jesus shows us there that delayed discipleship is insufficient discipleship. Then this third man says that he will follow Jesus. But he said he first wanted to go and say goodbye to his folks at home. And Jesus warned this man that, you know, if you go to those folks, you're probably going to encounter the sort of situation where they're saying, you're getting a little too radical 
in this Jesus thing. You're going a little bit overboard. Come on, stick with our traditional Jewish faith. Why would you go out with this guy who's so much different than what we're used to? And Jesus knew that this man was in the threat of finding divided discipleship. And that too was found to be insufficient discipleship. And apparently none of these men arose to the challenge of true discipleship. Why would I say that? Well, Luke Chapter 10, verse 1 starts off with, after this, that is, after the testing of these three potential disciples, after that, the Lord appointed 70 others. He appointed others than those he has just tested. They were apparently not among the 70 that are now sent out. And here's an interesting tidbit. Why did Jesus appoint 70 individuals to go before him in these verses? Well, this text doesn't explicitly tell us that let me state that up front but the number 70 did have some significance for the Jews in fact in Genesis chapter 10 we have a record of the descendants of Noah and and particularly Noah's sons Shem Ham and Japheth are mentioned along with all of their descendants in Genesis chapter 10 and this as you know after the flood when all of humanity was judged with the exception of those who were in the ark this would be the source of what all the nations that would come after Noah would have to come through Shem Ham and Japheth and of the descendants of Shem Ham and Japheth in Genesis 10 there are 70 that are mentioned and so the Israelites would refer to this as the table of nations whereas Jesus had originally sent the 12 disciples out in Luke chapter 9 symbolizing his good news going out to the 12 tribes of Israel. Now the Lord sends out 70 as this indication that he's preparing individuals who will be ready to go to all the ethnes, all the people groups, all the nations. He's sending them ahead of him to every city and to every place where he himself was going to come. And Jesus, through the gospel, has planned that no nation should be left out his message was headed for all of them and still today he compels us to take this message to all the nations this is why we go but as these early disciples were preparing to go they needed to learn to depend upon the lord's power how could they tap into his power well the answer is so simple one word prayer Jesus calls for his disciples to pray. They could perceive the need. They could see, they could look around and see that the harvest is plentiful and the laborers are few, which is in fact what Jesus says in verse 2. And in response to the great need of individuals who were primed and ready for the kingdom of God, Jesus commanded his disciples with this phrase. He said, therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest you see Jesus was showing them the first way to get going on his mission was to go with dependence upon his power he was calling for them to fuel up on prayer then he commands them to go saying behold I send you out now I can imagine the mentality that some of these disciples might have had between verses 2 and 3 here in Luke chapter 10 Some of them were probably thinking, yes, Lord, the need is great. Yes, Lord, we need workers. Yes, Lord, send us the workers that we need. But then it gets personal. 
Because then the Lord tells them, Behold, I send you out. And as Christians in this Christless age, I think we're prone sometimes to say, Lord, there's a great harvest. Lord, send somebody out to make a difference in this needy world. But we neglect to realize that we just may be the somebody that the Lord has in mind. And so we lock ourselves like camels in the zoo. And we refuse to use our gifts and the truth that God has poured into us for the very purposes that he's designed us as the church to carry out. And so I ask you, my friends, are the fields still ripe unto harvest? Are there still lost and lonely and desperate and hopeless people all around us? Are there still people who need a hope that extends beyond the next bottle or the next pill or the next relationship or the next paycheck? Is the Lord still willing and able to provide this hope? Yes, he is. Yes, the need is great, but yes, his mercy and his kindness and his grace is still rich and is still able to meet the need. Yes, the fields are still ripe unto harvest. Oh, that we as the church might pray earnestly that the Lord would send out workers into his harvest. And would to God that we as the church would pray so hard that our prayers would be changed from Lord send somebody out into the harvest to Lord send me out into that harvest. You know what happens to the harvest when the workers don't go out while it's still ripe? It withers. The wild animals come and they eat it up. The cold swoops in and kills it. Or to put it in more practical terms, A lost world continues on not knowing about the love of the Savior. And it perishes to spend eternity in hell apart from Him. And I can't help but think that the reason the laborers are so few in our day is because so many of us are unwilling to rely upon the power of the very Lord of the harvest Jesus is the Lord of the harvest, my friends. He has power over all of its circumstances. The need is great, but the Lord of the harvest is greater. So let us get going with dependence upon the Lord's power as we go. That's the first way to get going. Here's the second. Go with trust in the Lord's protection. Jesus says in verse 3, Go, behold, I send you out as lambs, in the midst of wolves. How's that for a mission recruitment brochure, right? Come and enjoy being a lamb in the midst of wolves. I mean, wolves are fierce animals, especially when they're presented with an opportunity like a weak and defenseless sheep. They circle around. They snarl with their teeth. They attack. And Jesus says, I'm sending you out like One going into a situation like that. Furthermore, he commanded these disciples to go without money or without a bag or without a change of shoes. And we say, man, what is up with that? I can't take any money. I can't take any supplies. I can't take a change of shoes. 
what's going on here? Why would Jesus send these individuals out into enemy territory with nothing of their own? Well, because, my friends, when you have nothing, you must rely on the Lord for what? Everything. Now, this is not an ultimatum, I should say, for all individuals who would follow after this circumstance throughout the history of the church. Jesus doesn't lay this down as an absolute command that says, if you're going to be a servant of mine, you must go without these things. We should be clear of that. But this is a lesson, a very clear and practical lesson for us. That in these first ones who went out, who took nothing They came back and they gave a glad report of how even the demons were subject to them in the name of Christ. And my friends, if they could go with nothing and be successful in their endeavors, think of all that we have that we can use for his kingdom and his glory. And yet the lesson should be the same. That if we're depending on any of that stuff, and not depending simply on what he can provide us, then we found ourselves in a wrong state. Because Jesus can provide for us all that we need. He is a sufficient Savior. And we can go with so much more. But if we go with anything less than a full trust in his provisions, then we are selling ourselves short. So if you want to serve the Lord, you must trust in his protection. If you get out into the midst of wolves and you start flexing your, mutton, your me muscles, right? Look, look at what I can do. Look at what great gifts I have. Look at what intelligent logic I can convey. Look at what rich resources are available to me. And yet you do not trust the Lord for his protection. Those wolves will tear you limb from limb. And do you remember when the disciples argued over who was the greatest back in Luke chapter 9? What Jesus did? Jesus called to himself a little child. And and he said, whoever wants to be greatest in the kingdom must be like this child who has no status. This child who has no wealth. This child who is not looked at as anything valuable in society. The one who is like this one is the greatest in my kingdom, Jesus says. And by that, he conveys that we must come with a total dependence, a total faith, a total reliance upon him. Because God uses the humble. God uses the broken. God uses the hungry. God uses those who are confident and little more than what he can do in spite of their weaknesses. And I've got to tell you, my friends, if if I was a lamb in the midst of wolves, there's one thing that I would want. I'd want a good shepherd. I'd want a shepherd who was wise. And I'd want that shepherd to be powerful. I'd want that shepherd to never leave my side. I'd want that shepherd to love me. If I had a shepherd who was all of those things, then the wolves would no longer be a concern for me. And my friends, as you go out as sheep among wolves, remember That David, who was described in the Bible as a man after God's own heart, said, The Lord is my shepherd in Psalm 23. In fact, Jesus himself says in John 10, I am the good shepherd. My friends, we can go out with confidence as lambs in the midst of wolves because we have a good shepherd. 
We have a shepherd who loves us. We have a shepherd who cares for us. We have a shepherd who protects us. He is all-knowing and all-wise and all-powerful and always presence. So trust in the good shepherd and go with trust in the Lord's protection as you go. When you and I fear fearful that, that someone might say something to us that will throw us off of what God's called us to do. Or when we fear how someone might respond to us or how someone might ridicule us if we go out for Jesus, we're giving in to the wolves. We're saying, I think that wolf is greater than my Savior. We're saying, I think that wolf is more powerful than the shepherd who watches over me. I think that naysayer is greater than Jesus. And friends, I just want to tell you this. There's not a wolf out there that Jesus can crush with the very breath of his word. There is not a wolf out there that does not tremble in his presence. In fact, you and I need to come to the realization that we're safer out there in the midst of the wolves with the shepherd watching over us than we are within the thickest walls we could find without him. So let the good shepherd's protection sustain you as you go. And when those wolves surround you, there's a song that you may have heard by Michael W. Smith that I think could give some good encouragement. The song's very simple. In fact, I think we're going to use it as our invitation here today. But our praise team just picked it up this morning. It only has two lines in this song, uh, and and it's called Surrounded. But, But the song simply has these two lines that say, This is how I fight my battles. It may look like I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by you. That this confident assurance that comes through in the song is that even when the wolves are rallying around, even when the dangers are all around us and those fangs are showing and and they're nipping at our heels, the fact that we look to be surrounded does not negate the fact that our Father surrounds us with a greater protection a greater comfort a greater ability to crush those wolves when we are going in his name and so when the wolves surround you as you seek to live for the lord remember the reality that you are surrounded by the good shepherd so go with trust in the lord's protection that's the second way to get going here's the third go with purpose bound by the lord's plans Go with purpose, bound by the Lord's plans. From the latter half of verse 4 through the end of verse 9, Jesus calls for his disciples to go with a purpose that is bound by the Lord's plans. He shows them how to get going, and and as he shows them, he gives them specific instructions about how to keep on task in the work that they're doing. He's teaching them how to maintain their purpose because our mission is an urgent one. Think about this. If your house was burning down, and you were trapped inside, you wouldn't want the firefighters stopping for coffee and a chat, right? You wouldn't want them coming with a malice that said, I really want to see this guy burn. Now, that's not what you'd want them doing. And you wouldn't want them hearing about a fire at a bigger, nicer house, and then turning off on the way to your place so they could go fight the fire at that place instead, right? You would want them to stay on task. You would want them to provide the help you needed before it was too late for them to render that help. 
And my friends, there's no time for distraction in our work. The stakes could not be higher. People are perishing when we prioritize our leisure above getting into the fields of work for the Lord's harvest. And so we need to keep our mission in mind. We need to be bound up in our purpose, the purpose of the Lord's plans as we go. We see that played out in a few avenues here in this passage. Jesus teaches his disciples to maintain a purpose that is, first of all, steadfast. He tells them to greet no one along the way in the latter half of verse 4. Now, Jewish greetings were pretty elaborate affairs, and oftentimes they would include a formal meal. Diversions like that could really take a disciple away from the Lord's plans. But he also teaches his disciples to maintain a purpose that is, secondly, peaceful. Jesus teaches his disciples to go in peace as they enter a house, according to verse 5. They are to first offer peace to that house. And if a man of peace is there, his peace will return. That is, they will receive a welcome and a peaceful exchange. That's the primary objective. They go in peace. Jesus teaches the disciples to start with peace. They are on a peace-producing mission from the very prince of peace and so are we so let's maintain a purpose that is peaceful but jesus also teaches the disciples that they should maintain a purpose that is thirdly contented that's why in verses seven and eight he instructs his disciples to stay in the house and not to keep moving from house to house they are to eat whatever is set before them in the city where they are welcome this is the life of a missionary He adapts to receive the things that are strange to him, the missionary does. He does not go to find the nicest place to hang out. He doesn't move from place to place. He doesn't give the wrong impression that he's only in it for the benefits. And all of us are called to be on mission for Christ. So let's maintain a purpose that is contented. Finally, Jesus teaches his disciples to keep a purpose that is gospel-centered. As they find a peaceful welcome, Jesus instructs his disciples in verse 9 to heal those who are sick and to say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. You see, their purpose is not to win friends and to influence people for the sake of a popular cause alone. Their purpose is to inform individuals of the very words of Jesus that the kingdom of God has come near to you. And my friends, if we are on mission for Jesus, then we will do nothing less than to inform individuals that the kingdom of God has come near to them. We cannot be contented to serve those in need if we do not serve up the truth that the kingdom of God has come near to them. And that's not to say that we can't take avenues, we can't build relationships, we can't have encounters that build up the opportunity to share the gospel. But if we are going with no intentions of sharing the gospel from go, then my friends, we have missed the purpose. And we must stay true to the purpose and the plans of the Lord. So let us go with purpose that is bound by the Lord's plans. That's the third way to get going. Here's the fourth. Go with passion for the Lord's truth not everyone will return peace for our peaceful purposes jesus makes that clear in verses 10 following as he describes those cities which do not receive his messengers if that should happen jesus gives his disciples a way that they should warn that city in verses 10 and 11 he says go out into the city streets and say 
Even the dust of our city, which clings to our feet, we wipe off in protest against you. Wiping the dust off of one's feet was a prophet's sign of God's impending judgment for a city. That was a proclamation by that prophet that he didn't want any taint of that city left on him in the day of wrath when God would bring great wrath upon that city. And when it comes to cities facing judgment in the Bible, the, the greatest judgment that may come to mind for so many of us is that which fell upon the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. These cities were judged for their homosexual wickedness to angelic visitors who came to visit Abraham's nephew, whose name was Lot. And, and as they came to visit in Genesis chapter 19, we find that the men of Sodom, the men of this city where Lot lived, gathered around his house, and they said, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out that we may have relations with them. And then they threatened Lot, and they sought to break into his home. But we read in verses 24 and 25 of Genesis 19, that the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of those cities and what grew on the ground. Now that's a pretty severe judgment. But Jesus is saying in this passage here that a greater judgment awaits those who reject him. He says it will be more tolerable in that day. That is, on this coming cataclysmic day of the Lord's judgment, it will be more tolerable on that day for Sodom than for the city that rejects the Lord. Then he began pronouncing woes on the cities of Galilee where he had just been carrying out his ministry. You remember Jesus has now set his face to go to Jerusalem, but for so much of the time we spent in Luke to this point, he's been up in that northern area of Israel known as Galilee, caring about ministry amongst these Galilean cities. Well, now Jesus specifically mentions a few of those cities. This includes the city of Bethsaida. That is the hometown of three of his disciples, Peter and Andrew and Philip. And he names the town of of Chorazin, Chorazin and Bethsaida were both near the place where Jesus carried out that great miracle of feeding the 5,000. And yet Jesus compares these cities to the pagan Gentile cities of Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon were, were cities which were to the northwest of where Galilee was. And it was kind of out on the, on the coast. It was a nice coastal region, lots of trade. In fact, it's a very wealthy couple of cities. Because of their port city, because of all the trade that came through them, they were able to amass a great bit of wealth. So they were known for their wealth, but they were also known for their unabashed sin. Zechariah 9.3 tells how these cities had piled up silver like dust and gold like the mire of the streets. That's pretty wealthy. Yet Jesus says that if they had seen his miracles, the miracles that were performed in Chorazin and Bethsaida, these wealthy people would have repented long ago, Jesus said, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. I mean, that's like saying that the residents of Beverly Hill, if they had seen some of these miracles of Jesus, would have traded in their mansions for burlap sacks and ashes to show that they were sorrowful for their wrongs against the Almighty. And then the final city that's mentioned here is Capernaum. 
This city up in the northern region of Israel, known as, as Galilee, was essentially the home base of Jesus' ministry. It was one of, of Capernaum's synagogues, for example, in which Jesus healed a man who was possessed by an unclean spirit back in Luke chapter 4. Also in Luke 4, it was there in Capernaum that Jesus healed Simon Peter's mother-in-law of a fever. And then in Luke chapter 5, Jesus healed a paralytic man who had been lowered down through the roof by his friends who were seeking his healing. Then in Luke chapter 7, Jesus healed the servant of a Roman centurion who had asked for his help. This also occurred in Capernaum. This city had been the very center of Jesus' public ministry to this point. Its people had been witnesses of so many rich miracles. And yet Jesus describes the forthcoming fate of this home-based ministry town of his own here in Luke 10, 15. That's where he says, And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will be brought down to Hades. Hades in the New Testament is usually a place where the dead await final judgment. But in this word, Jesus shows that Capernaum's presence in Hades has this lasting impact. For Jesus contrasts Capernaum's being brought down to Hades with being exalted to heaven. Jesus was saying that these people in this city who had witnessed so many miracles from God were headed for eternal separation, eternal torment. All the mighty works of God had apparently had little benefit for Capernaum for the simple fact that they were unwilling to repent. And my friends, through all of these woes, as Jesus pronounces woe on each of these cities, Jesus makes it clear that rejecting him is a far greater sin than any other sin you could commit. Rejecting him will bring a far greater judgment than anything else you could ever do. And so he pronounces woes upon these obstinate people. But do you know what? Even a pronouncement of woe can be a mercy if it leads an individual out of his or her dangerous predicament. It is a kind thing to do to inform an individual if he or she is about to be burned. If you see a building on fire and you know that you have the opportunity to tell someone to escape and to be released from that danger and yet you refuse the opportunity to share that news, you are not acting in love. Yet all around us there are these so-called Christians, myriads of them who say, I don't want to be judgmental. I just want to love everybody. And by that they mean I don't want to tell people that they're in danger. I don't want to inform people that if they stay on their current road apart from Christ, they're going to hell. I don't want to tell people that there's one free and safe escape from the peril and his name is Jesus. I don't want to seem like I'm intolerant of their choice to live in a burning building. What we're really saying is I don't want to seem too brash or to disturb your comfortable life, so I'm just going to let you burn to the ground with the building that you're in. And you can see a sense of Jesus' passion in these words as he echoes these statements of woe. And yet Jesus does not call for his people to hedge on the truth. He calls for us to go with a passion for his truth. He doesn't instruct us to change the message if it's not well received. 
If the message of God is not well received, then we need to be faithful to the truth. And we need to warn individuals what lies ahead and that it is not good. If you want to know the good news, you've got to realize the bad news. The bad news is that sin makes us enemies of God. And we've all sinned. And it's the absolutely pure being of holiness that the creator God is. He cannot tolerate sin in his holy presence. And as the one purely righteous judge, our God cannot let sin against him go unpunished. And so he therefore condemns sin. And because our sin against, our sin that we carry out is against an infinite and a holy God, the judgment that we deserve for even a single sin is great. It is death in the present and an eternal separation and torment thereafter. And yet our sins are many. And my friends, that is bad news. If that, if that alone was all the truth that we had, can you imagine the despair that we would be in? But praise God, there's good news that echoes in this story. The good news is that God, in His love, through which He longs to see you restored, has sent His Son to bear the punishment that you deserve. He lived the sinless life that we cannot live. So he did not deserve any condemnation on his own, and yet he still bore the wrath of sinners on the cross of Calvary as he died in our place. The just for the unjust. He was bruised for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Let's read a little more of Isaiah 53, which has so much to say about what Jesus has done on our behalf. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. And all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. That's the good news, my friends. The sinless Savior has come to die in our place. Jesus has already taken the punishment. And as the sinless substitute for those who come to him by faith, Jesus arose victoriously over death, over sin, over the grave. He has conquered and he now lives forevermore. And he calls all men to come to him by faith. He calls for you to trust in him. The good news is that even though God is righteous and just and cannot let sin go unpunished, his ultimate desire is not for you to be banished to hell. He loves you and he wants you to be restored to him. And so he has made a way. But if you're going to pursue that way, you must abandon your own way. You must repent You must turn away from your own self-righteousness and your own selfish pursuits and you must yield your life to him. You must call upon Jesus as the Lord of your life and the new master of all that you do. Anything less than that falls short of biblical faith. Jesus saves those who yield their temporary lives and their eternal destinies to him as Savior and Lord and King. And this, my friends, is good news but it's only good news if you own it it's only good news if you abandon your efforts and you run to the savior for what only he can provide 
And so I say to you, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Come on into the kingdom. Don't delay. Jesus invites you now. Give your life to him. He will save you. He delights to do so. His rescue is all that you could ever need. And your eternity will be safe with him. How near has the kingdom of God come? It has come so near that it is vibrating right now through the very drums of your ears. How near has the kingdom come? It has come near enough to burn some of your hearts. God wants you to know that his kingdom has come near to you. Will you listen or will you reject? Jesus speaks of that day which is coming when those who reject him will be punished. But there's good news, my friends. Today is not yet that day. There is still time to repent. So for those who are near and far, there is still time to hear that the kingdom has come. So let us go with passion for the Lord's truth. And the final way to get going for Jesus is this. Go with authority as the Lord's delegate. Jesus takes the pressure off of us. Many of you wonder, what if I mess it all up? What if I tell others about him and they reject me? Then I have failed him, surely. But that's just not true. In verse 16, Jesus says, The one who listens to you listens to me. And the one who rejects you rejects me. And he who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. You may say, well, you know, that's a, that's a good news sort of scenario you laid out early, but, but really, that's just a message from a budget-rate preacher. Well, that may be true, but this budget-rate preacher is conveying you to you the word of Almighty God. And insofar as I am faithfully preaching His word, if you listen to me, you listen to the God who compels me to preach. And if you reject my budget rate preaching, you're rejecting the Savior of all mankind and the Creator and Commander of all that there is. There is no middle ground here. There is no happy, hear the message, and move along unchanged without rejecting God sort of scenario. There is no coming in and out of a service like this unchanged with no repercussions. You either hear or you reject. Don't come away with the mentality that God is going to bless you because you listened to his word but didn't respond. You may say, well, at least I supported the church. At least I went to listen. Surely God is going to bless that. But listen to what Jesus is saying here. You either truly hear, which leads you to repent and turn away from any effort that you yourself might be exerting to save yourself such that you fall into the grace of Christ or you reject him. There is no middle ground. You cannot earn his favor by listening without repenting. There is no merit to soaking in without surrendering. And every Christian is called to go. I'm not saying that every one of us needs to sell all that he has and hit the road. Though I certainly believe that some of us should be asking, why shouldn't I do that? But every one of us must be prayerfully seeking the guidance of the Lord of the harvest to see how we might join in the work of his harvest. And when he reveals these potential harvest opportunities to us, we must be willing to go. 
for some of us, that may start with something as simple as going across the hallway to share the good news with our kids. Or it may mean going to the house next door or to the cubicle down the hall so that we can share the good news of the gospel. We can build relationships with our neighbors and our coworkers to get to know them and to seek to pray for them about opportunities to witness to them. It may mean going to the phone and calling up a relative or a friend just to say, you've been on my mind. And there's something God wants you to know. It may mean coming to your pastor to say, I sense that God is calling me to love on people outside of this place and asking, can you help me find an avenue to live that out? And so with the the final moments we have here together, two very important statements I think that come to mind and what Jesus has revealed for us in this passage that really we need to take action on as individuals and as the church. The first is his very explicit command to us to pray to the Lord of the harvest. And I I just want to say, folks, we've got to be in prayer about his harvest. Is the harvest plentiful? Yes, it is. Are the laborers few? Yes, they are. If that's the case, what does Jesus call on us to do? He says, beseech the Lord of the harvest. Then he might send out laborers into his harvest. And then the other action that we need to take is this very real truth that the kingdom of God has come near. And and each of us has heard this message from Christ. There is no middle ground. We either hear and respond through repentance and trust in him or we reject his message and find ourselves remaining in what is already our lot eternal condemnation and so as we close with our final moments here today our praise team is going to come and lead us in a song and I really want this to be a different sort of invitation for us some of you may be able to walk down the aisles if you can I just would hope that we would gather around together maybe kneel maybe 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 stand whatever it looks like for you and just pray to the Lord of the harvest. I, I mean, to follow faithfully in what he's called us to do in this passage, praying that he would send out workers into his harvest, that we might have a heart and a passion, a burning desire to see that lived out in his calling for us. And then if there's some need you need to respond to other than that, I'm going to be here praying. You can tug on me now or you can get with me after the service and we can talk through whatever that need is now. But, but for today, I just want us as a body to pray about our going, to to, to pray about the Lord sending out workers into his harvest. So I'm going to close with a a quick word of prayer, and then I'm going to invite all of you to come and to share in that prayer, if it is your will to do so. Let's pray together. Father.